Please note that the contents of Model Mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about model mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. Welcome to Model Mentality. I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, and today's episode is a special one because it will mark our final episode, our grand finale after a great two-year run. Today, we will take you back to the very beginning, back in 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic started, when Bridget Malcolm and I were scheming about how we could open up this dialogue in the fashion industry by interviewing models about mental health issues. Before we do this, a few words from myself and from Bridget. Thank you so much, Ali. As mentioned, I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model and mental health advocate. And I had the absolute pleasure of working alongside Ali for a portion of the Model Mentality podcast, an experience that I truly treasure. As someone who has had both a very public career and mental health journey simultaneously, I've always believed in the power of a shared experience. Being able to open up and share what I am going through has always been the first step to healing for me. Doing this podcast alongside Ali meant the world to me as it was an opportunity for large-scale connection from our listeners. And it was an incredible opportunity to give a voice to models, a cohort not typically understood beyond their exteriors. I'm extremely proud of the work we have done with Model Mentality, and I'm beyond thankful for being able to go on this journey with Ali. It was my first experience of being able to effectively move beyond a 2D image and into the world of advocacy, and I'm beyond excited for what the future holds for both Ali and myself. This podcast has meant a lot to me. It was my first foray into using my literal voice and developing a creative process to tell people's most intimate stories in a way that could make others feel less alone, more understood, and open up conversations that are not always discussed publicly. We have had the privilege of speaking with so many models and others in the fashion industry about their most vulnerable and honest moments in their lives. And through these conversations, we have covered topics ranging from COVID to gender identity anxiety and depression, trauma and sexual violence, masculinity and mental health, eating disorders, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, substance and alcohol use disorders, psychological distress, and most importantly, the depth and breadth of what people experience in their daily lives. And I have to mention this, this podcast has forged a beautiful friendship between Bridget and myself and my kids who love her to bits and pieces. And I hope this is only the beginning of our collaborations. So this is not the end, but a pause for now. 
Stay tuned because something new is coming in 2023. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Ali Sharma MD to be the first to know of what's next. Back to the beginning. Bridget and I had planned to launch in April of 2020, a launch event and a beautiful send-off with a meditation group. But the COVID-19 pandemic altered those plans and our lives drastically. Because we were already recording when the pandemic arrived, we quickly pivoted and our small female-founded team of Bridget, myself, and Andrea, our marketing guru, instead launched a podcast called Coping with COVID-19 by Dr. Ali in April 2020 with Bridget behind the scenes recruiting guests prolifically and rapidly editing and producing content. And I mean rapidly, she was a superstar. We interviewed Mia Kang for an episode that ran on both coping with COVID-19 and model mentality because she was in Thailand in quarantine with what was likely COVID and feeling the effect on her mental health. What became so clear is that her COVID quarantine threatened the exact routine and structure that helped her with her mental health. Without her normal routine, such as Muay Thai, movement, and her social network of support around her, the quarantine made her vulnerable to her mental health. Take a listen to Mia after I asked her how quarantine was affecting her and how she was feeling. For me, I've noticed myself being extremely triggered and feeling a sense of helplessness because you're confined to a limited space. Uh, your routine is completely thrown out of whack. I cannot eat what the fresh vegetables that I want to. I cannot train how I want to gyms are closed. We can't go outside. I, I train in a, um, you know, you need people to, (laughs) to, to train. It's not a a thing you can do alone. And not being able to have that has made me feel very helpless. And, and like, I don't have any control over what's happening. And, you know, I, for myself, that's what I sought after in my eating disorders is that I wanted to get a sense of control, and I can feel myself leaning back into um, old thought patterns, old habits in search of this control. And, you know, for the past week, I went to the hospital eight days ago and I got tested for COVID-19. I still don't have the test results. So over the last eight days, I've been recover, I've been resting, I've been in bed, I've been eating whatever I want to. Um, I've just been focusing on, you know, recovery, resting and being happy. And now that I'm feeling better and I'm up and about, I feel softer. I feel, you know, certain things of certain parts of my body that I'm insecure about are now brought to my attention. And I'm, I can feel that regression happening. And I, if I'm feeling it, I know for sure, uh, plenty of other people are feeling it too. Um, and so I want to encourage people to take that control in a different way and to, be your own motivation. Cause I think a lot of us find motivation in a schedule, in a trainer, in a workout class, in a routine. When now is a time for us to start getting creative, to get that motivation in a different way, to, to be your own source of motivation. So whether um, it's so great to see what's happening on social media and online and seeing these virtual workout classes, you know, seeing people put, um, you know, recipes on how to make, you know, nutritious meals on barely next to no ingredients. Um, I think that, that we just need to, to look in the right places and we need to stay positive and we need to, you need to be active about that with yourself because now in a time when you're left alone with your own insecurities and you, you, we have too much time with our own thoughts, it's, it can be really damaging. And I think that we have to all make an effort to make sure that we don't 
fall down that rabbit hole or to pull ourselves out of that rabbit hole when we do. When we have to sit with our emotions and our feelings, sometimes it can be overwhelming. During the pandemic, I saw this time and time again, that people who were usually on the go were halted to a stop. And so many were flooded with emotion and confronted with things that they had usually been distracted by. It was hard to hide from oneself. And of course, with the collective trauma of the pandemic, stress accumulated and mental health became top of mind for so many. But what if you've had trauma after trauma, challenge after challenge, and yet you find a way to do the work on yourself to heal and to be your authentic self despite the hurdles? And then to top it off, you fight for radical change. I think of two episodes, one from Teddy Quinlevin, a transgender model who is a fearless advocate for change, and Carrie Otis, a survivor who's been fighting to make a change. First, with Teddy Quinlevin, we launched her episode in June 2020, which was LGBTQ Pride Month, the 50th year of Pride traditions. If you don't know Teddy, here's a bit about her from Bridget. Teddy was discovered to model in 2015 by the creative director, Louis Vuitton. She is a regular on the runway for brands like Versace, Marc Jacobs and Dior, and has been on the covers of Louis Ficiel and ID magazine. In 2017, Teddy came out as transgender, and today she is the first ever transgender model to be the face of Chanel Beauty. In this episode, we discuss her story as it relates to her gender identity from childhood to present, including the bullying she experienced and the intense psychological process she experienced leading up to her public disclosure within the fashion industry. In my Let's Get Clinical segment of Teddy's episode, you can hear the context leading up to a specific moment that was powerful for her, the first time in which her gender was affirmed. Teddy knew from a young age that she was a girl, despite being assigned male sex at birth due to conventions of anatomy and genetics. Throughout her school years, she was subjected to an extensive history of bullying because of the way she looked. She stayed strong because inside she was clear about who she was despite the discrimination of those around her. A turning point was in high school when one of her teachers asked her what pronoun she would like to be addressed by. This was the first time that an adult outside of her immediate family had the sensitivity to ask, not assume, and allow Teddy the space to decide on her own how she should be addressed. This is the power of gender affirmation. And here is Teddy speaking on this herself. And I'll never forget that I had this art teacher, a painting teacher named Ken Tai. He's just like this incredible painting teacher who taught me so much and treated me with so much compassion. And I had never been treated by so much, I had never been treated with so much compassion by a male figure ever in my life. And he said to me, I remember one day in class, he came up to me at the end of the class and he said, Teddy, um, I just wanted to ask you, what pronouns would you like me to use? Would you like to be called she? Would you like to be called he? Um, and uh, I, I said, well, I don't care. And he was like, no, I really ca- I want to know what you want to be called. And I said, I was like, I don't care. You can call me whatever you want. And he said, no, I'm serious. And so I said, okay, well, I feel like I'm a girl. So I would appreciate it if you called me she. And from there on out, it was that just having that approval to be who I really was by an adult, by a grown person was so special to me and was such a great experience because I was finally able to really, that was like the first moment where I was like, okay, from here on out, I am 
portraying myself as female for the rest of my life. This is how I've always felt inside. And now finally I'm going to be recognized for who I am. Um, and, you know, from there on out, that's, that's who I was. I was Teddy Quinlevin, the girl. Teddy is a fearless advocate within the LGBTQIA plus community. And we recommend you to listen to her full story on model mentality. It's a powerful one. Another story of a survivor who's been through sexual violence in the workplace, anorexia, substance use, and more, is Carrie Otis. Carrie is a model, survivor, mother, and author, and at the tender age of 17, left for Paris and experienced repeated sexual violence in the workplace by someone in a position of power. After years of the trauma manifesting from heroin use to sex to anorexia, it wasn't until she was hospitalized for a cardiac complication from anorexia that she realized things had to change and she started to do the work. I absolutely was on survival and go mode for a long time, you know, and obviously was in relationships, but was sort of faking who I was within relationships because God forbid I allow anybody in and get, you know, destroyed or hurt. And it wasn't, you know, that there's, there's so many different compartments of my life. I definitely manifested the I definitely manifested the men that could not be available for me. I manifested abusive relationships, you know, trying to work out and sort out, you know, what had transpired. And none of this was really, you know, conscious. It was just sort of how I was operating. And I think I operated in that very destructive way until, you know, until actually life stopped me. Right before I turned 30, I actually had to have uh, non-invasive heart surgery um, because of my anorexia. So anorexia was definitely a big piece of this. When I was in Paris, um, this is not just my story, but many other women's, you know, we, I was publicly weighed. So I was forced to go get on a scale and was also given cocaine by my agent so that I would stay skinny. So this was the beginning of a long relationship with anorexia. And of course, anorexia was a way of being in control again. You know, if I could control what I was putting in my body and be the controller of the punishment or the rewards, you know, I, I was in control. And so this finally, you know, manifested in a heart condition that I had to have um, non-invasive heart surgery for right when I was turning 30. And that was a really, really big wake-up call for me. Um, and it was when I actively started to go to therapy and and really work on myself. And, you know, there there were so many pieces and, and places in my life where I, I wasn't well. And I had really cleaned up most things by 29. However, you know, this one piece that, that I'd been living with for so long, which was disordered eating, you know, came to the surface in terms of how my physical body was dealing with the trauma um, and, and that constant deprivation. And so it, it was the beginning of a much deeper dive into my mental health and, you know, how was I doing? And what was the internal conversation, you know, that was taking place? And so all of these sort of elements and aspects of myself that had not come to the surface all came up at 30. And like, okay, you know, we're going to 
we're going to do some serious work. Um, and it was the beginning of an incredible spiritual journey. Um, the beginning of several treks that I made to Nepal on humanitarian missions and, and really stepping out of my comfort zone and stepping out of the life that I, I had lived. And I was able to gain perspective of both the world and my place in the world and how I fit into the world um, and really started to tap into my own sense of purpose. About a decade ago, after becoming a mother, she decided to write a book and name her perpetrator. But it was not until about two years ago that her story gained momentum. She now stands in solidarity with many other women after she and a dozen other survivors testified against her perpetrator. She knows now that she's not alone. Switching gears a bit, a common thread in most of our guest stories are the topics of eating disorders, body image, and preoccupation with weight and size. I was particularly struck by the episode with Emily Didonato. She describes to us that she's a hard worker, she likes to achieve, and she shows up in her best form. But what if the indicator for success is your body and your body size, as opposed to your work or a work product? Your body then becomes your sole focus, and we know the ways in which that can go wrong. Emily says that she was afraid at first to talk about her body image when she was younger. But over time, and as the industry has been changing, she speaks more on body positivity and acceptance now. Have a listen to this clip about her awareness of her body image before and after she started modeling. You know, it's funny because I, I did, I did think about my body and the way that it looked from a pretty young age. And I think that's because like it exists today, like music, then it was like Britney Spears in a music video. Like I was comparing my body to celebrities and people and wanted to look like them or maybe the prettiest girl in my school. I felt like I was always very aware of my body and what it looked like in comparison to others. So yeah, I remember always, but I wasn't dieting or doing anything to change it. I was just kind of like, oh, my body's like this. I wish it was like this. And then when I went into like junior, senior of high school, I was like, oh, I can change this. There's something I can do about it. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. I was actually curious if there was any criticism or self-criticism towards your body prior to modeling. Yeah, I think that there was. I mean, I remember being aware of my body and jeans and all of those things in middle school and jeans. Yeah. <laughs> you know what kind of jeans? I'm going to tell you what kind of jeans, jeans with no pockets on the butt. Like that. Yes. I remember that time. <laughs> oh my God. Like low riders flares. And I, oh yeah. And I was like, why doesn't my butt look like that girl's butt in her Hollister, no pocket jeans. Like I don't get it. And I remember being aware of that, but I don't know. Well, you'll know this better than I do, but I feel like, I don't know why I was programmed from a young age, like in sixth grade to already be like wondering why my body doesn't fit some sort of ideal. Right. And we can talk a little bit about that. Yes. In a bit, but it sounds like you didn't change your behavior before you started modeling as a result of it. So then let's talk about how your modeling career changed the perception. I know you have spoken about that, um, but especially in the early days of your career, tell us the process by which your behavior started to change. Yeah. I think I realized in my junior, senior of high school, I was like, 
you know, figuring out that like eating, if I wasn't eating Burger King every day after school, um, you know, that was better. I felt better and I looked better. And, you know, my, my skirt for, from school was a little less tight in the waistband. Like I remember. And then I think slowly, but surely, and this really, it really, um, accelerated when I'm lived, started living alone though, because, and I said this in my video, but when I was living at home with my parents and I was in school, I had a routine. I played sports. I was with friends and it was really easy to still remain in somewhat of a healthy routine. But when I moved to New York to pursue modeling full time, I was more isolated. And I think it allowed me to kind of start creating more unnatural habits that I didn't really have anyone around me to go like, girl, that's whack. Like, what are you doing? Or like my parents would be like, you're going to sit down and eat dinner with us, you know? But then when you're alone, it allows you to maybe create more unhealthy habits, which is, I think what started happening, especially when I moved to New York alone. Okay. So no oversight over meals specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I think meals and the alone time was just did something to me for sure. Can you describe a little bit more about what it did to you? I think I was, because there was so much added pressure because I moved to Manhattan and all of my friends went away to college. And I just was like, I have to be successful at this. Like if I'm the girl who went off to be a model, like I, I just felt like it would be so embarrassing if I failed. So it really put this like crazy pressure. I put this crazy pressure on myself that I was like, I have to be successful. And I looked, around and I looked very different from other models that were around me at the time. I was always like a size four, six, but I got super, super lucky because I did work early on. I had my Maybelline contract and I did have this level of momentum that it was enough for me to pursue modeling full time. But it, I could not let go of the fact that I didn't look like the other models that I would see in magazines or at the agency. Like I was just like, well, I'm so much curvier and different and I don't fit clothes when I go to work. And I think I was just like, what do I need to do to change this. Yeah. So that's interesting. I'll stop you there for a second because even though you had this contract, right, which I'm sure is a coveted thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> still it's, you were still getting set off or triggered by different oh, yeah. ideals around you. Yeah. It wasn't enough to like reinforce. Okay. I have a, you know, I'm good the way I am. Yeah. I think that if I would have gone to college or stayed at home, it would have been enough. But because I was in Manhattan, which is such a competitive space to begin with, and then fashion is very competitive. And I just, you know, I was surrounded by people and agents who believed in me, which was a beautiful thing, but it was a lot of pressure too for a 17 year old to be like, I gotta be, gotta make it big. When Bridget and Emily wrapped up this episode, we spoke about the irony of all of this, that Emily and Bridget, who have had wonderful modeling careers, are likely the envy of so many young people, given how they appear on the modeling stage. And yet they themselves struggle with their own body image issues. It's a bitter irony. So what's the take-home message here? For you young people out there, it's about body positivity, healthy weight at any size, and a broad representation of body types of all sorts in the media. Everyone struggles with body image, including those who appear flawless and perfect in the media. Driving this point home is the only way things can begin to change. One of the other topics that's so common in our society is alcohol and substance use disorders, and specifically how people cope with substances. Both guests, Jolie Jones and Dylan Lynch, who we feature here, discuss how in their teens, their journey began. For Jolie Jones, it was coping with discomfort. For Dylan, it was one addiction replacing the next, from an eating disorder to Ambien to alcohol and other drugs. 
Let's turn to Jolie Jones, who is a trailblazer in the modeling world. Not only was she one of the first Black models to be featured on the covers of magazines in the late 1960s, including Seventeen, Mademoiselle, and more, she is the daughter of legendary Quincy Jones. Jolie came onto this podcast to publicly disclose her lifelong battle with addiction. Since she started modeling in her teens, using substances such as speed, prescription pills, and alcohol became a way of life which allowed her to escape from herself. Take a listen. You know, in, back in, uh, in the 60s, downtown where all the photographers were in the 20s and the 40s, and you know, the neighborhoods were not as, you know, gentrified and, and safe feeling necessarily. Where were you living at the time? Well, I was living uptown, you know, with my mother in the 80s. But um, a lot of the ghosties were downtown. And so I was walking up streets uh, with my portfolio all dolled up. And, you know, our construction guys would sort of yell at you and, you know, whistle and stuff. And it was terrifying. I mean, at 14 years old, looking like you're 18 or 19, you know, I was terrified. And um, just like shaking in my boots. And by the time I was 15, right before I turned 16, I had a boyfriend who was much older. He worked in the bars on 2nd Avenue. And I was doing my schoolwork at home. I was going to a professional school because I was working every day and I would do all my schoolwork at home and I'd go in once a month and take my tests and stuff. It was like a, you know, what do they use the word for that? Um, I can't remember, but I didn't have to go every day. And, uh, you know, I was nervous in front of the camera and uh, I don't know, my inner life really was so uncomfortable most of the time that, you know, I started to take a little bit of Valium before going to work. And then um, my boyfriend introduced me to speed, you know, snorting a little bit of speed so that I could have the energy to go through my whole day of work, do all my homework, and then hang out with him, you know. So it started young. I didn't do that for long because I don't think that's sustainable. But you start to try to do things to make you comfortable, you know, and and you don't really have the skills to talk about what's going on inside. And that's an age where you really need a lot of guidance and conversation and sharing about life. Since that time, Jolie has lived many lives and her career spans from the early days of modeling, acting, singing, and becoming a mother to now being an artist and a grandmother. And upon reflection, she hopes that by sharing her story, she can help educate young people on healthier ways to cope with stress and emotions. If you think about it, Jolie's experience of managing her discomfort with substances at a time where she did not have the skills to talk about discomfort is a common theme. Feeling feelings can be uncomfortable for so many. Many people push emotions away or self-medicate in order to numb out their emotions. And actually, it's the very opposite that leads to emotional health. It is so important to feel your feelings and if they're too overwhelming to speak with a mental health provider. Dylan Lynch speaks earlier on in our episode about how at 16, she was developing her brand identity instead of being a normal high schooler. And later she tells us how one addiction led to another from an eating disorder to misusing Ambien to alcohol and more. So I know you said that one, one addiction transferred to another addiction. So it was the binging and the binging and purging then to substance use. So can you tell us about that transition and what happened there? 
Yeah, that transition was kind of really snuck up on me. Um, because I was seeing, since I was in recovery for my eating disorder, that was the first time that I was seeing a therapist. I was seeing a therapist and I was seeing a psychiatrist. Um, and with my therapist, I was working on um, cognitive behavioral therapy, C- CBT. And doing that to sort of, you know, take a look at the behaviors and my eating and all that stuff. And then with my psychiatrist, we were trying to tackle what I was, I was diagnosed with at the time, um, anxiety and, and depression. Um, and so we were kind of trying to figure out like if medication was the right route for me to kind of help in my recovery from this eating disorder. And that was kind of where it snuck up on me because I was having problems sleeping. You know, my eating was out of whack. My emotions were out of whack. My, my, mental state was just like, I was all over the place. So I was having problems sleeping. And then the the psychiatrist that I had at the time was like, well, have you tried Ambien? I said, no, I have no idea what that is. And so she prescribed me Ambien. And then I started taking Ambien and it was kind of like, I didn't, and this is where the internet just allows you access to everything. But I I found out that it was a controlled substance and it was something that could be abused. And this is sort of where my substance abuse addiction kind of started to grow and form and say like, Hmm, like, let's see what happens if I use it in a way that's not directed, tried that ended up enjoying that feeling and continuing sort of that behavior. And then I was no longer prescribed Ambien. And so I had, I was like, okay, what is, I still, I want to get that feeling back, but I, but I can't take Ambien anymore because, you know, my parents have caught on to the fact that like, I'm not taking it as directed. So then they, you know, took that, took that resource away from me, um, rightfully so. And so then that's when I found alcohol and started to drink alcohol. Like I was taking the Ambien, not as directed. (laughs) My alcohol use was definitely not as directed. And that's kind of like the progression that I made. And then that is like a whole nother part of my story where just the progression of alcohol and other substances and how that played a factor in my life. And ultimately that is what brought me to recovery, recovery from eating, recovery from substance abuse, recovery from, you know, working on my mental health and anxiety and depression. It was kind of, I was always working on that throughout everything, but it really kind of came to, to ahead once I sort of started to tackle my substance abuse addiction, which took a long time, but eventually did. Recovery is such an important topic in mental health, although traditionally you hear it used as the process of how one becomes and stays sober. It also refers to healing, and this is an important part of any mental health journey. Healing requires change, change for the better, whether this means changing psychological patterns through therapy, improving one's awareness, or reducing stress by changing your lifestyle and making different choices that are designed for a better and more authentic you. Switching gears a bit, because so many of our guests were women, we decided to host a special series on masculinity and mental health, where I enlisted Kai Braden, who's an actor and model, and one of our guests for season two is my co-host. I first reached out to Kai after I noticed that he was a part of the Model Alliance, And we had a great discussion in the episode on his cultural identity, a traumatic experience of sexual assault in the beginning phase of his modeling career, and the importance of mental fitness. Take a listen to Kai's view on prioritizing mental health. 
You know, I, I think uh, based on the discussions I've had with my own friends, it seems like having a therapist or, you know, psychologist or um, somebody who, you know, you can help, help can guide you through your journey and growth mentally. Um, I think there's still some sort of stigma on that. I, I don't understand why. I think, you know, people generally feel that you need to have some sort of traumatic event in your life, which warrants you to go, um, seek therapy. But I don't, I, I disagree. Like we were talking about in the beginning of our discussion today, it's, it's, it's just like physical fitness. It's mental health. It's every day is a choice to be happy. You choose to grow and to learn about yourself. Why am I, why did I react to this person when they said this to me? Um, what, why did I feel this way? How can I communicate better? Because if we can find a way where we can work on our mental health daily, not just when we feel crappy, but on a daily basis, I think we're going to be able to understand ourselves better. And when we can understand, our, understand ourselves better and be more comfortable in our own skin, we can communicate better. And if we can communicate better, we're going to be such a better, happier, healthier community. After we recorded Kai's episode, Kai and I created the mini-series on masculinity and mental health so that we could speak with more men, explore why traditional stereotypes may get in the way of seeking help, and find men who are willing to advocate for and talk about their mental health and mental fitness journeys. Kai chose our first guest, Nick Denby, who is an actor, model, and athlete to challenge those traditional stereotypes of masculinity. Listen to Nick and Kai speak on the importance of having a coach for your mental well-being in light of these stereotypes. We're all taught as men to just, you fight through it. You, you buckle down, you don't complain, and you just, you go about it. I tend to like look at things on a, on a positive perspective. I know you do as well as like, yeah, this sucks right now. But there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, whatever whatever goes up must come down. And whatever's, it's just a dichotomy of life on how things flow. And, you know, if you can keep that positive mental state of, hey, man, I can get through it, you know, then that's a great step in the right direction. But also, I look at mental health as, why not have a therapist? Why not talk to a third party non-biased perspective and, and get what they think about it. Why not get as many sources, resources as you can to, to help those things? You know, like I bring it back to sports because I think it relates very well. The best basketball players in the world have a coach. Why? Because he's on the outside. He can see things that you don't see while you're in the heat of the moment, emotional in that game. And he can point out and say, hey, look, they're doing this. We need to do this. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, great. And so I, I think about that on, on every perspective is that even if you're the best at whatever you're the best at, having a coach, having somebody look from the outside can't hurt. It can't hurt. It can only make you better and more aware of the other things that are coming at you. So in regards to mental health, I think that, you know, everybody should get a, I like to call them coach, you know, yeah. get a mental coach, get, get somebody who can help you when you, when you don't have the answer. And you've stewed in it and you've analyzed it to death. Get somebody to help you. 
Why not? Allie and I coined a term, uh, at least I like to say we did, uh, on our episode. Are you um, taking credit for her? <laughs> called <laughs> Mental Fitness. And um, I think you're, you're spot on, Nick. I think you're right. Everybody can benefit from having a coach or having, you know, professional guidance in that light. At the beginning of this podcast, I described from my sense of masculinity as um, strength. I think strength is one of the facets of masculinity in my eyes. And unfortunately, the stigma of being strong as a man is, Mm. well, be strong, handle your own issues, deal with it and move on. And I think that is one of the stigmas, you know, in my head about being a man is, well, if I want to be a man and I, I want to be strong, then I should just handle it myself. So in that light, you know, that would, you know, cause me to feel that I shouldn't seek out help, but really it, you know, it can benefit us all. So it's not just about physical fitness. It's also about mental fitness. And part of being mentally fit is knowing that there's power in speaking up in getting help and in healing to move forward. Kai and I spoke with Kenny Sale, an actor and model, who found the courage to speak up publicly about a traumatic event in his life. Take a listen to Kenny's perspective about the power of speaking up. When we think about mental health, how do you feel like the stereotypes that you grew up with that you were, you know, speaking about earlier on this episode about machismo um, get in the way of working on on your mental health and well-being? I think it greatly impacted impacted me. And it, it... I, yeah, it took me a year to process, but I didn't speak about this until maybe it was like four years after when I went and talked to um, Vanessa Friedman at the New York Times. She was the she was actually the first person I had ever told a complete stranger, which was pretty bizarre. After that, like I, I definitely noticed some changes in my in my mental health. Like I, it was it was it was a huge relief to finally talk to somebody about it, and that definitely began the healing process. And the hardest part, I, what we were talking about with machismo, um, is that I, I okay, I, I need to, I just need to get over this. Like this, this is whatever, you know, this isn't a big deal. I don't need to tell anybody about it. I can just deal with it, push through it, and um, just keep moving on with my life, even though it sucks and I'm miserable. Those ideals, I mean, they're ingrained uh, from. You know, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. You grow up with it. You, these are the things are taught in um, any given community. It's it's how your your parents raised you or, or whoever you grew up with um, or the community that you grew up with. Um, and having those things ingrained in me, I, I think was, uh, it was really tough to get over. You have to process not processing. And so it's what it felt like. And I think that makes it um, exponentially worse in, in the long term. Speaking up is one way forward. Finding a mental health professional is another and leaning on your social support networks during tough times is critical. We later spoke with Andrew Hayden King, an Asian-American actor, model, and fitness professional, on how he healed from a traumatic incident and how relationships have played a huge role in feeling better. What else contributed to the healing? A lot of things. I, 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 I deeply value relationships, and I, I measure success with the circle around me. And I truly believe that the people surrounding you greatly influence you. And, um, I was, I'm I'm very fortunate to have 
a great network of friends um, who deeply care about me and, you know, genuinely want the best for me. So, you know, having those honest, deep, uh, transparent conversations has been a huge help. Um, secondly, um, you know, I have an amazing brother who, you know, I can only speak positively on and he chooses to always be there for me and support me um, and understand, um, even though he's not in the industry or in the modeling industry himself. Um, so relationships are, you know, something I find as maybe the top uh, factor in terms of healing for me. Um of course, there's other things like like therapy. Um, I've recently been introduced to uh, getting a therapist um, over the past couple months, um, and it's been great. You know, we talk about everything from A to Z, and you know, I I, I think this uh, this has been a very valuable experience for me because I definitely have friends who are willing to hear me out. You know, of course, like as friends, you want to share great news, but at the same time, you don't want to burden um, your friends with your problems um, or problems. issues or worries or anxiety. Yes. yes. Well, yeah. And this is a designated person where that is the sole purpose. Right? You can download yeah. everything onto them. Which yeah. Is- and I'm paying them. So uh... <laughs> and I mean, there's there's comfort in knowing that you're in presence of somebody who's a professional who can guide you to grow and to um, learn about why you make decisions and how you communicate with people. So being in a safe space like that under professional guidance, I myself um, definitely value as well. So healing, working on yourself, feeling your feelings, focusing on relationships and admitting that you need help are all a part of the mental health journey. We had a beautiful conversation with the renowned English model, Karen Elson, on prioritizing her mental health and where she is today with her mental health journey in her early 40s. Karen has walked runways for everyone from Alexander McQueen to Chanel to Valentino and Gucci. She's been the face of countless campaigns and graced magazine covers shot by leading photographers around the globe. She's also a musician and a leading advocate for model rights in the workplace. In sort of today's world, I I see there's a lot of people who are working on, you know, working on their body, working on their physical shape, equally do the same amount of work on your emotional well-being. you know, do that same work to build yourself up as a whole person emotionally. And I think maybe even more so when it comes to especially young women that, that it's so important to take good care of yourself and taking good care of yourself isn't limiting your food. It isn't taking that next crash diet to attain that beach body. It isn't doing the, the, the impossible two hour workout. You know, it's, it's about taking good care of your, of your soul, you know, of your mental well-being. That for me is the source of, of my recovery and the source of where I now feel better in my skin than I have ever in my life. And I say that hand on my heart. I can say at 42, I feel just better in my skin now than ever. And the reason for that is because I've done a lot of work on myself and I prioritized my mental well-being above 
looking a certain way. So I guess that would be my advice. I love what Karen says, that it's about taking care of your soul. And once you do this and focus on your mental health, the good news is the change is permanent. To feel better in your skin is deeply gratifying. And it does mean we have to do the work on ourselves. All in all, from personal stories of mental health struggles, to stigma and barriers to getting help, to those who are radically trying to open up these dialogues and make mental health accessible to all, we hope you have enjoyed this journey with us. And there are so many others who we have not featured here whose voices are equally important. Please listen to our episodes, find the support that you need to ensure daily mental fitness, and keep working on your well-being so that you can optimize your mental health for the years to come. I can't say enough. It has been an honor and a privilege to speak to the people we highlighted here and the many more who helped us along the way with this important dialogue and telling people's most intimate stories. It is human to struggle with mental health, anxiety, depression, substance use, and so much more, both within and outside of the modeling profession. And we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. I'm signing off as your co-host for Model Mentality and grateful to all of you who are listening. Stay tuned for more to come in 2023. With love, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. Thanks for listening to Model Mentality. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.